0: Well, we're back uh, today in our series called Lord Teach Us to Pray. It's week two. Uh, last week we jumped into the series and we said, uh, I'm not sure that there is anything in our Christian journey, in our discipleship journey, or our, our apprenticeship to Jesus that we know we should do, but we feel like we just aren't good at it. Again, maybe that's just me, but I know lots, I know it's not just me. I know that many of us think I, I should be a better prayer. I'm not sure if I'm doing it right. I'm not sure if I'm saying the right things. I, 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 I want to grow in it wherever I'm at. And so looking at the New Testament, looking at the Gospels, there's actually only one time where the disciples turned to Jesus and said, hey Jesus, can you teach us something? And it was this, Lord, teach us to pray. And so last week we, we looked at the first line of the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer of what does it mean to uh, call God our Father in heaven? And this week, we're going to continue into the next line of that prayer. Uh, the first line we said is an, ad- is an address. It's, it's kind of a, the dear God sort of opening to the prayer. But now we step into the first of six petitions or statements or kind of prayer requests, if you will. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, this morning we'll be in... Verse 10. So the first petition, the first ask that Jesus teaches us to ask for in this model prayer, he starts off and says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now that, that word hallowed isn't one that's really used Often today, I haven't used it this week, except in writing my message. And yet, still many of our modern, almost all of our modern Bible translations still plunk it in this verse. It, it's like, uh, we're going we're to modernize the English, except for this word, "hallowed." we're going to keep the old King James for that word. So it's there. So it's important that we kind of understand what it means. And if this is the, the first sort of opening phrase of the prayer, maybe the, the, the most important one because it's at the start, it's probably important that we know what it means, right? Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says the word hallowed means to sanctify or to revere or to make and keep holy. And so this word gets at the majesty and the holiness and the grandeur of God and his name. Now, it doesn't take much time going through scriptures, going through the Bible at all, to notice that the Bible uh, clearly describes God as holy throughout. One maybe familiar example to us is from the beginning of the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. The book opens with Isaiah getting his call to be a prophet of God. And he's got this vision of the Lord uh, and he kind of steps into the throne room and he's got this vision of, of God sitting on his throne in the throne room with these, these seraphim or a type of angel around him on either side. And one of these seraphim speaks up and declares to another one there. Do you remember what he says? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The earth, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, in the Bible and and in our common language today, whenever there's repetition, it's to add emphasis, right? Like, that hockey game last night was really, really good. The Oilers are really, really hot right now. Like, emphasis, right? So notice that back in this passage here, it wasn't enough for the angel, for the seraphim to say, God is holy, and move on. that, That wasn't enough. The seraphim had to repeat holy three times to try to capture the depth and breadth of God's holiness. One writer says, holy, holy, holy is meant to stretch the boundaries of your imagination. Whatever it means to say that God is holy, you need to know that he's on an entirely different category of holiness. He is much holier than you ever thought holiness could be. And it's actually stunning that the angel says, okay, I can't just say God is holy. I'm going to say God is holy, 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 but not even that is enough. He has, the angel has to continue and say the whole earth is filled with his glory. So how great is the holiness of God? it's it's great enough to fill the whole earth. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, and within half an hour to 40 minutes, there are some of the most beautiful drives in the world. And the whole earth, everything we can see, everything we can dream, all that, that when we think about that compared to God, all we can think of is bigger. God's glory is bigger than that everything we can see, all the things around us is meant to to humble us with the realization that God is fundamentally unlike us, to help us understand that that the the God we're dealing with and the God we're talking about is completely different than anyone or anything we have ever dealt with before. These words are meant to to blow our minds. He is holy, holy holy, holy. He is earth-fillingly, gloriously holy. He is unlike anyone or anything that has ever been called holy before. He's actually the definition of what it means to be called holy. When compared to God, nothing else that exists is ever holy, let alone holy, holy, holy. Again, think about the most beautiful scenes, the most beautiful moments, the most emotion-driving times you've ever had and consider that's only a shadow of the greatness and glory of God. What does it mean when we call God holy? As this line in our prayer tells us, teaches us to do. Well, the, the word for us holy comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which means, uh, kind of a direct translation, to cut. And so first, uh, to be holy means to be, to be cut off or to be separate from everything else. It means to be in a class of your own. It means to be distinct from anything else that has ever existed or ever will exist. So God is uniquely separate from us, from his creation. And he is distinct, uh, he, he is distinct from anything else that existed. Nothing can be compared to him. There's no comparing anything to God. Now, when we try to explain these concepts, when I try to describe God, sometimes we actually try to compare God to things because that's how we operate. When we talk about who God is or his character, sometimes you we say, well, God is like this. God kind of acts in that way. God is like, but we can't, actually do that that's just our minds trying to to put god into a box or a hierarchy or a category some way to understand him but in reality that's not something we can do with god because he doesn't fit in any box or hierarchy or category he created all of those things there's no standard to measure him against he is above all. He's the one that created the standards. His holiness ought to leave us scrambling for words to describe him. See, God is the great other, separated, unique and different from any other thing that exists. The second thing it means to be holy, to be, to be holy means to be completely pure in every way possible and at all time so not only is god other from us but he is so completely pure that he's distinct and unlike anything else again that has ever existed he's in a moral category that we have never encountered before he's in a moral space that no one or no thing has ever occupied before his his essence who he is is something we've never seen or experienced before And really, we have no frame of reference to understand what he is. Nothing like him. This separation between the holy, holy, holy God and us is is just massive. And I I hope we're starting to grasp that. But there's even more to it than just that. God's holiness is not just an aspect or a part or a character trait of who he is. It's actually the very essence of who he is. Uh, One writer says, if you were to ask, how is the holiness of God revealed? The only correct answer is, in everything he does. Everything God thinks, desires, speaks, and does is utterly holy in every way. He is holy in every attribute, in every action. He is holy in his justice, in his love in his mercy, in his power, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his patience, in his anger, in his grace, in his faithfulness, in his compassion. Holy is what he is. In Exodus 15, verse 11, uh, uh, the text asks, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? who is like you, majestic in holiness and awesome in glorious deeds and wonders. 1 Samuel 2.2 declares, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you and there is no rock like our God. This doctrine of God's holiness, this, this understanding that God is holy, not just he acts holy, but he is holy, is foundational to the Christian faith. It's it's right at the center of the grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, without the holiness of God, without him being this as we've described, there would be no moral law for humans or the world to operate under and be responsible to. If God was not holy, there would be no divine anger at sin. There would be no perfect son sent as an acceptable sacrifice. There would be no vindication at the resurrection. There would be no final defeat of sin and Satan. There would be no hope for a new heaven, a new earth, where holiness will reign over us and in us forever. The biblical story would not be the biblical story if it were not written and controlled at every point by one who is holy at all time and in every way. Paul Tripp, who's a a pastor and author and counselor in the States, also points out that any explanation of the holiness of God must lead us to seek and celebrate His grace. See, it's because of His grace that He has revealed Himself and that we know that He is holy. It's because of His grace that we are accepted and not rejected by Him because He is holy. It's by His grace that we are confronted by His holy rule. But because by grace, it's, just, uh, it's not just for His glory, but also for His good that He rules. It's because of His grace that, become, that we become aware of the gravity of our sin that infects every single one of us. It's because of grace that we can run to God for help and not have to run away from Him in fear. It's because of grace that God appointed his perfect son to be the perfect uh, sacrifice for imperfect people. It's because of grace that we have been invited to live in God's holy presence forever and ever. The holiness of God is at the foundation of the Christian faith. Without that, it all crumbles. The reason we've spent so much time this morning trying to unpack and describe this doctrine because like hallowed, holiness or holy is another word we don't really use in our culture these days. Again, it's, it's not really in our day-to-day. But the thing is, whether we realize it or not, every one of us is actually deeply concerned and impacted by this idea or this concept of holiness. See, if, if, if to be holy means to be set apart, or it means to, uh, that, that it points to something or someone that's holy other, and if, if to hallow something is to make that thing the most important thing in your life, which means to worship it, then in this sense, whether you call yourself religious or not, every single one of us hallows something. American writer David Foster Wallace recognized this, and he gave a commencement speech uh, a few years ago at Kenyon College, and he told the graduates this. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more and more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, trying to be seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The point is, whatever it is that you choose to worship, whatever that thing is that you choose to hallow, And that list that Wallace gave in his speech there could be expanded to any number of things. It could be your family. It could be your kids. It could be your job. It could be your social media following. It could be living in the right house or the right neighborhood. It could be having the right image, driving the right car, excelling in whatever athletic endeavor grabs you. Whatever you worship, you will serve. And that thing will dictate how you live your life. And so we all have something or some things or someone in our lives that we worship, that we regard as hallowed in our lives. But the key to understanding ourselves is to realize that whatever we worship will completely control our view of ourselves and the world around us. Think of it this way, a couple of analogies maybe to help us grasp this. The, the sun is the brightest light that our eyes can see, but it, it's more than that, because the sun lights up everything else. And so it's by the light of the sun that we see and interpret everything else. And if you look at some sunrises coming up, it's colored different than in the middle of the day and in the evening. Or think of a pair of glasses. The lenses that are in your frames change the way you see the world. Right? They can help uh, bring things in or out of focus. The color of the lenses changes the way uh, you see the world too. Right, You've, you've probably heard some oh, they just see the world through rose-colored glasses. Right? This week, uh, I did a quick search on the different kind of lenses for ski goggles because hopefully there's going to be more and more snow and we can all get out and do some skiing, and found that there are at least eight. I think it was maybe the Smith website that says there's eight. Okay, So maybe others have more for all different kinds of conditions, right? There's, there's clear lenses, or you can get a, a yellow or a rose lens for this type, or you can get a, an amber lens for this condition, or orange, or dark brown, or dark gray, or black, or photochromatic, or polarized, or mirrored. And again, I think there's probably more, right? And every single one of those lenses alters the way you see the world around you. I've learned from our Monday night rides that as the sun starts to go earlier, I need a lighter lens so I can see the trees and not crash and die, trying to keep up with everyone else. But as with all analogies, it does break down eventually. But here's the thing. Whatever you adore most, whatever you believe to be the most important thing in your life, whatever your heart desires Most, Whatever you hallow, whatever you worship, shapes the way you approach everything else in your life. And so it would serve us well to simply take a minute or two and consider what are the things in your life that are trying to capture your heart? What are you hallowing? as we think about these things, and as, as maybe the Holy Spirit brings some things to mind, keep in mind, th- this thing or these things, they may not be overtly bad or sinful, like kids or work or family, right? Uh, let me suggest that that a lot of those things that, that vie and pull for our heart, uh, they may actually be good gifts from a gracious and generous God that are just out of order or misplaced i suspect we might all have an answer or two or five in mind let me ask one more question because sometimes when i hear a question like this i know what the answer is supposed to be right if you've heard me speak more than a couple times you probably know what the answer to a question like what are you hallowing should be and if you're not sure you can read our verse and say okay hallowed be your name ah god's name that's that's it But if you met someone for the first time and handed them your phone or your calendar or your day timer and they knew nothing else about you except how you'd spent your time for the last week or what you had planned for the next week or month or whatever, what would they say that you hallow? That's a terrifying question. Would it be your job? Would it be activities, sports, retired life, work, home, finances? And please don't hear me ask and and, and poke and and kind of prod at this question as as a way to sort of uh, pour on guilt or, or, or. Tell you you're not doing a good job or or coming from a place where I'd be happy to give you my calendar and you'd see Jesus all the time. Instead, I I ask this from a place of love as your pastor, wanting what's best for you and for us and for your families and for for our neighborhoods and for our towns and cities. This might not be a, a, a bad question that we start to ask each other when you get to the top of the stairs. Hey, how was your week? What did you hallow? (laughs) Try to find the back way in if that starts to be a routine, right? This is actually one of the reasons that we gather together week after week so that we can ask each other these kinds of questions. To, To check in and see where our hearts are at and to remind ourselves and remind each other that we do in fact serve a holy God. In his book, uh, You Are What You Love, great title, by the way, James K.A. Smith points out that it's when we gather to worship that our hearts can be recalibrated. And all those good things that during the week are unconsciously trying to vie for that hallowed spot in our lives can be re-indexed by God into their rightful lower places of importance. He says, through spirited worship, that means uh, it's not just like Uh, really exciting worship, but through worship in the spirit, the grace of God captivates and orients even our unconscious. I can uh, come in this morning and have all kinds of things on my mind, and and, setup didn't go as as smooth as we expected, and I I don't know if this is going to land, and I've got stuff to do, like all the stuff, and then we sing, I exalt thee, I exalt thee, I exalt thee, and if I Slow down and open my ears and let my heart... Okay, that's it. Who cares? We love you online, but who cares if the sound isn't online perfect? Who cares if the room isn't perfectly balanced? Who, who cares? If whatever. This is what matters. I exalt thee. In that part of his book, he points as well to Paul's teaching on worship in Colossians 3. Paul writes in... Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one holy body, that's the church, let it rule in your hearts and to be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So when we gather one of the things we do is we train one another and we train our hearts in community look at what that list says we, we we evaluate and we reorient our hearts when we gather we we recalibrate our hearts by by letting christ's word letting letting the scripture dwell in us speak to us not assuming that that I, i've got my plan i've got it figured out i'm going to go my way but rather we say okay this morning the Lord might speak to his word and say, Sean, this has to change. I, I, I've called you to something so much greater than what you're giving your life to over here. Come back to me. We allow our, our hearts to be reoriented by, by teaching and admonishing or encouraging one another, by singing psalms and, and hymns and spiritual songs. Where else, other than, uh, you've heard me say this before, other than sporting events, do people gather to sing? Like, rarely, Right? Yeah, we have this opportunity to to come and there's something more emotive about singing than just hearing someone speak or reading words that that engages more of our minds and our hearts and our souls to, to, to calibrate to some truth that's worth giving your life to. And we can reorient our hearts by singing with gratitude to a holy God. These, these gatherings are supposed to be times of formation, or, or better said, maybe counter-formation to all the rival stories and, and liturgies that our world and our culture tries to tell us. See, our, our culture is also telling us every single moment of every single day what we should worship, what should be most important, what sh- you should give your heart and your life to. The teaching of our culture tries to, to capture our hearts and our longings and, and our desires and, and miscalibrate them, leading us to rival versions of what the good life might be. And our culture these days is telling us even louder to reject God as some outdated, offensive, simple-minded, simple-minded thing that's, that's, that the less enlightened people of the past needed as a crutch. I say that that we as a people have grown past that. We don't need some external authority to tell us who we are and, and how to live. We get to decide those things ourselves. But when we come face to face with the holiness of God, the one who spoke all of creation, even the farthest invisible, not yet seen or dreamt of reaches of the universe, the one who spoke all of that into being the one who holds all of the universe in his hands yet the one who knows and loves every single one of us all those claims from our culture which by the way western culture has been built on a foundation and bedrock of christian belief and thinking and philosophy and understanding instead today we try to we try to have the kingdom without the king as one Writer Mark Sayers, I think, has said, we we want uh, the stuff that God promises us, but let's not have that God, right? When we come face to face with the the holiness of God, all those claims from our culture just fall away to the wayside. Paul Tripp uh, elsewhere says, the holiness of God decimates our autonomy and self-sufficiency and drives us to the Savior who is alone able by his life and death to unite unholy people to a holy God. And we've spent a lot of time this morning talking about the holiness of God and and what it is in our lives that we treat as holy or hallowed, and we don't want to rush away from those things. I hope that you spend some time this morning or this week thinking about that. But let me bring it maybe all together with maybe an obvious question that you thought I might start out with. Why is this line here? Why is it even in the prayer? Why, why is hallowed be thy name? Isn't God's name already holy? Why do we have to pray as if like we're asking, okay, I really hope, God, that your name becomes holy. Maybe after where we've come today, the answer to that is, is clear. Maybe not, though. The thing is, this, this line isn't a prayer request. That we're asking that, that hopefully, if enough of us gather and ask enough times in the right way that God will actually be holy. It's not that at all. Instead, it's more of a a grounding, a centering, let's get this straight before we continue, reminder that God is holy, and we want to make sure that we recognize him as such. One of the uh, early church fathers, Augustine, put it this way, he says, and this is prayed for, not as if the name of God were not holy already, but that it may be held holy by men, and that God may become so known to them that they shall reckon nothing more holy in which they are more afraid of offending. It's to put God in his rightful place. As we kind of come to a close, what do we do with this phrase, hallowed be thy name? one of the uh, kind of texts that sort of drives the church or has driven the church, the Westminster Shorter, C- Shorter Catechism starts by saying this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. that That's keeping God holy, if you will. And it's essential that we realize that, that this is a single end. It's not two things. It's not as though we I have to glorify God, and then I also have to go over here and enjoy Him forever. It's it's all one thing. They, They come one with another. Our holy God has made us to find our deepest fulfillment, our highest joy in hallowing His name. And doing that through prayer and worship and service and how we live our everyday life. Yet it's because of God's holiness and our sinfulness, that there's a gap that has separated us from God. And yet, in his holiness and in his grace, God was not satisfied to leave that gap in place. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus, to rescue us. Jesus, who was God in the flesh, hallowed the Father's name perfectly his whole life. And then then he went to the cross, died for our sins, And rose again so that we could be forgiven. And that chasm between us and a holy God could be crossed. So our response to God is one of worship. One of thankfulness for God's grace towards us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our response is to to turn from hallowing other things, to, to ask God for forgiveness for our disordered desires and to ask him to transform our hearts into ones that wholeheartedly hallow him and follow him and honor him and confess and run from our sin and hearts that are propelled towards the mission of telling all those around us about this holy, hallowed God. Let me pray. God, thank you for these words. Thank you for who you are. I, I pray that this morning we would just grasp even a little more of a sense of, of just how holy you are, how other you are, how, how separate you are from your creation that we would, uh, like Isaiah, have, have this image of, of you and uh, uh, being in your throne room and, and the angels around us saying, holy, 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 and our response is to, to fall to our knees and say, woe is me, for I am a sinner. And I'm so separate. And then let us remember Jesus who came to, to cross that gap, to, to, to pay the price for our sin and, and thus, to adopt us into the family of God so that we can approach that holy throne. Jesus, thank you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.